it's funny. We're now in 2021, starting to get people saying, "Oh, I don't want to be on WhatsApp. I hear Facebook are using my data." I mean, wake up! This has been <laughs> happening, <laughs> you know, since 2004. Uh, we are joined by David Rowan. Hey, David. Shalom, Gil. Shalom to you. Um, it's great to have you with us. Uh, and for the few people on the planet who still don't know who you are, I'm going to give a brief introduction about who you are. So David is a former founding and editor-in-chief of Wired UK Edition. He's an author, an angel investor, keynote speaker, and the founder of Voyagers, a community of people who work in impact-type areas. He's also the author of Amazon number one business bestseller, Non-Bullshit Innovation, Radical Ideas from the World's Smartest People, a global quest for bold corporate innovation in the face of technology-led disruption. Good to have you with us. I'm glad to be here. So, David, you talk about bold quest for disruptive ideas. I, there's so many words there that I actually love, like disruption and bold. We can and, play bingo. And, and quest. And, disrupt. Disrupt. So, but you actually have, you know, you're very direct and you like non-bullshit innovation, right? So can you describe to me very simply, what's bullshit innovation? I was running Wired magazine in the UK, which tells the story about the people building the future in tech, in design, in architecture, in new business models. And I was often called in to talk to a corporate leadership team And it would be typically their innovation away day. And they'd be the head of innovation. And if it was a really innovative company, they'd have a really stupid name for that job. So it would be like the chief disruptive growth officer or the digi digital Sherpa or something. Uh -huh. And they'd, they'd often have a room somewhere with some startups in it or a little fund where they were putting money into companies. And... I'd say, that sounds interesting. Um, how have you changed how you do things in the parent company? How have you ensured that in the future, you're still going to be producing the products, the services that tomorrow's customers want? And typically, the answer was, well, it's a bit early, nothing yet, but we feel we're in a good place. And after the 20th or 30th time, whether I was going to talk to you know, an energy company or a manufacturing company, I started thinking there's a real risk that a lot of these companies are not seeing. Clayton Christensen famously talked about disruptive innovation where you're carrying along on a path, a linear path that's been successful quarter by quarter. And suddenly this new paradigm comes along and you're not prepared for it. And I started to think that a lot of the talent and resources that were going into these innovation projects was bullshit. It was just talk. It was ticking the box. It was keeping the shareholders happy. It was a KPI for the board, but it wasn't actually changing how the company operated or thought. And I'm not cynical. I'm quite an optimist. I, I have hope. That guides me. And I thought, you know what? I bet there are some really impressive, big existing organizations that have found ways to transform their culture to empower the staff everywhere in the organization 
to find very fresh approaches, often using emerging technologies to create future facing value. And I thought, why don't I go and look for them? And I ended up um, traveling to 20 countries in search of the non-bullshit version of essentially corporate transformation. Let me ask you something because, uh, you know, hear, hearing you uh, say what you just said, um, I have to admit that I was probably earlier in my career, I, I would call it simply an innovation monkey. You know, I would be the one that uh, was hired because he was the innovation guy and let him play. So we're like, uh, but uh, they, I would say the company didn't necessarily have the, um, the, uh, the, the, the commitment to actually adopt anything, but they liked it to play out, right? Now, so, so I've, I've been inside and I actually made a career actually eventually, hopefully, understanding how to make it work. But I always sympathized, um, and I think this is probably a dilemma I wanted you to reflect on. If you're a company that's listed on whatever um, listing, NASDAQ, let's say, and you have quarterly uh, you know, uh, 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 reports that you have to file, and you look for your revenue to always grow, and you have this like money-making machine that does X, and letting that small thing grow, uh, you're not going to disrupt X because X is making you money and X is predictable. And, you know, how do you play out this, like, mothership money-producing, you know, predictable thing versus doing things in a random way, testing out, da-da-da-da? You know, what kind of balance did you find worked or, you know, you think is the right one? Well, first, Gil, I hope your job title was Innovation Monkey, because that would be <laughs> the most innovative job title. No, no. <laughs> um, but I felt it. You're completely right. The, the um, incentive system for listed companies very much works against change, doing something that, like any startup knows, is high risk, but could be transformative. And... What I noticed was that the companies that really got it, that were knocking the ball out of the park, that were being bold in building future-facing enterprises, they weren't owned by shareholders. They were typically either owned by um, a family. They still had a sense of control so they could think long-term. They were owned by or at least controlled by the staff. So there was a bank in Finland that I went to see called Oppa, which is the biggest retail bank, and it's more than 100 years old. And it's, I guess, close to what we in the UK call a building society. Every customer becomes a member, and so it's owned collectively by the customers. And Oppa, because it didn't have to respond quarter by quarter to the analysts, thought, hey, a lot of the way we make money is being kicked by the internet. And they went back to first principles because they didn't have the obligation to keep on doing what they're doing. To think, why do we exist? Why did we start this business a hundred and something years ago? And it was to help people in Finland get through difficult bits of their life, difficult transitions, buying the house, starting the business. How can we stay relevant to helping people through difficult transitions? What is the market not providing that we can provide in a way that makes profit? And they started thinking, well, healthcare, 
in Finland, there is a government healthcare scheme and there's a very expensive private healthcare market. But what if we, as a bank, create a health insurance policy, but also the actual hospitals? So when I went mm. to see them, they just built five private hospitals that were so efficient. If you broke your leg, you could get the scan that afternoon and the surgery the next day. Anyway, the cost of treating patients was low enough that the insurance premiums were really low. So they suddenly have a vast potential new business. But every sector where they had been working, they thought, what's tomorrow's way of doing this? And when I went to see them, I could see it was because there wasn't a strong controlling leadership that meant there could be some experiments. So in an organization that is listed, I think what is key is that the leaders realize they have to cede some power. They have to either create new incentives for staff at different levels to try things in a different way, to give feedback from what's happening in the marketplace, what the customer's changing needs are. And they also have to keep a slice of revenue for using play, hmm. for experimenting, for trying things like a startup tries that may not work. That's actually very... Uh... Very profound insight, which I found at the end of the day is probably the most powerful lever, is in one shape or form, if you don't have the leadership engaged, it's, uh, it, uh, it remains on the, on the produ innovation production levels, you know, l let the boys play around. It really takes the real leadership either to be fully committed or to be innovative and disruptive in the way that they do things, right? And I, I, I find I, I could almost say as a, as a paradigm, if leadership is not there, it's going to fail. Do you, would you agree with that? that it's, uh, it's, it's more than that. You also need leadership that gives air cover to the people trying the dangerously yeah. uncomfortable thing. So I'll give you an example. Um, you remember when President Obama had a bit of a, an awkward moment when he launched healthcare.gov and nobody could log in. It took you know, 11 hours, I think, before the first person could get in. Um, it was a disastrous government IT project, and they couldn't cope. So they called in some people from startups to come and save them. And that led to a team inside the White House that was um, working on essentially bringing tech, startup, digital skills to government. Well, there was a spin-off they created inside the Pentagon, inside the US Defense Department, because the problem of the US defense is it's a gigantic bureaucracy. You know, the Pentagon is the world's biggest office building. It's, I think, mm -hmm. 3 million employees. And typically, a procurement project is, you know, years late, billions of dollars over budget, and it's not what the troops on the front line need. Because you've got startups like ISIS hacking together ways to cause trouble. You know, ISIS will buy a DJI drone, put a grenade on it, send it over to the front line in Iraq. And America is waiting for, you know, the Lockheed Martin hmm. procurement product. Yeah. So a very clever thing they did in the Pentagon about five or six years ago was invite a pirate to come in, a guy called Chris Lynch, who um, is from the startup world in Seattle, he'd, um, you know, 
won some, lost some, but he was a, a street fighter. And he wore a hoodie that said things like hack the Pentagon. He swore a lot. He wore sneakers and he came into this big building where they were all wearing their military outfit and their camouflage. And he was told to build a small team. I think it was about 15 people that could hack the bureaucracy, that could challenge the norms of the Pentagon. And it was lonely. He kept finding doors slammed, but he kept going in because he's a startup guy. And the one thing he had was a letter in his pocket from the Secretary of Defense that he could bring out if anybody got in his way that said he has support from the highest level. It's called a letter of Mark. And the first project they tackled was security of the defense websites. It would have been pretty easy for somebody to break into the government websites and put a beheading video from ISIS. Mm -hmm. And so he said we should have a, um, a bug bounty contest. We should offer cash rewards to friendly hackers who show vulnerabilities. And he was told, you can't do that. It's illegal. There's no way you'll get permission. And somehow he got the right lawyer to find the justification. And it was an instant hit. Within minutes, they found vulnerabilities on a lot of the key defense websites. It's now American government policy in all departments. And it was because he had that pirate mindset. Then he went to the front line with some of his engineers and with soldiers hacked together radio jammers so that when ISIS was sending the drones with the grenades over the frontier, they would fall out of the sky. So bit by bit, he won the battles and started earning respect. But it wouldn't have worked had he not had permission from the top to say, go and be a troublemaker, go and be a pain in the ass and try and break this culture. That that air coverage is probably yeah, as powerful as being or having the executive management being innovative in itself or, or providing the leadership. But you have to do one or the, one or the other or both, of course. Be be inspiring, do things, move the organization in the right direction and provide the air coverage. But I, I wanna I wanna move on to to a different topic and I wanna present the thesis to you. Uh, which says basically through an example, my, I, in many, many times I've seen companies who actually don't understand their essence and therefore innovative, innovating within or looking for innovation in the wrong context, which leads to stagnation, failure, etc. And I, I want to give you my, uh, the example, okay? So I have a theory, it could be wrong by the way, that... Uh, Google's mission is not to organize the world's information. That's their stated purpose. That's nice. It looks good. But their real mission is to what I call expand time and space. Why? The more time you spend on the internet and the more internet there is, by definition, I'm talking about Google, the advertising company, because of their position in the market, and it doesn't have to be such a dominant like 90 plus percent of the internet. It could be even 60, 40. It doesn't matter. But as long as you're a dominant player... If there is more internet and people are spending more time on the internet, by definition, they will monetize it more with advertising. So their mission actually is to expand time and space. And that leads to innovation such as a search engine um, being the front runner in making Android the, uh, like, because they needed to actually um, create or help accelerate the mobile broadband uh, internet and 
uh, you know, operating systems back in the day weren't that good, so they had to make the mobile internet better, say, so Android. Uh, free time when you're driving, so Google was big into autonomous cars, right? So why would a search engine do autonomous cars? Because yeah, instead of driving, you could be entertained, you could search the internet, you could watch videos, that's, that's another like 10% of your time. Um, Google Glasses, that's another internet, if you're actually watching the internet. and So I think if a company finds its, and I think it's almost, I, I was reminded of that, uh, of my theory when you were talking about the bank, because you said something very, you know, very um, distilled. The bank went back to basics, but you said it differently. I, you, you know, they went back to their, who they are, the essence of who they are, and then innovating from there is so much more powerful than innovating from your product and making it a little bit better. Do you agree, disagree? What's your thought? You know, yeah, you I mean, think? I think Google is, again, slightly unusual in that the two founders arranged the share structure so they still have absolute control, so they can do things that normal shareholder-led companies couldn't do. They're losing billions most years in Google X, but Google X is the department that created Waymo, the autonomous car, and other businesses. Um, I spend a lot of time mentoring startups. I'm investing in early stage startups, which is a very painful and costly habit I'm trying mm -hmm. to kick. And often you get the same conversation with startups, you know, making hardware or software. They get obsessed with the technology. They assume that they're going to take 5% of a $10 trillion business in 12 months. And yeah. they suddenly forget why they exist, why the world needs them. And we talk a lot about, you've got to create a story where you're taking somebody on the hero's journey. You know, you're the mentor who sees the hero. It's a bit like, you know, the Star Wars plot. Um, there's a, an old world that's flawed. You offer them hope of a new world. You show them the dragon that they have to play, which is mm. you know, the problem. Mm. If they don't use you, they'll confront. And eventually they come back into the old world, a better person. They've got the dragon's treasure, but more they've, they've been uplifted. And I talked to them about creating a story that touches us emotionally. And often the conversation with the founders becomes a bit like a psychotherapy session it goes back to the key question, why are you doing this? What's the existential reason for starting this, you know, synthetic biology company, this cultured meat company? And then they get excited. Then they go back to, you know, my motivation is injustice, environmental decay, whatever it is. And, and then I kind of push them, okay, going back to that first purpose are there other ways you might be able to attain that if your current product didn't exist and that helps keep a very focused view on why we've got to keep asking why i want to i want to actually pick up on what you just mentioned because i actually uh, you know talking to other people in general but also on, on other episodes of this podcast somehow many of the paths uh, lead to the importance of storytelling in the art of innovation or the narrative of whatever is it that you're doing. Can you maybe emphasize your take on storytelling? Because most people, especially in companies like where I come from, 
um, are so focused on the technology and the products and, and, and storytelling is like the soft skill that some people should have, but not all of them because most people should focus on doing. Um, can you talk about the, the essence and the importance of storytelling in your view? If your organization isn't empowering everybody at every layer as the person who sees the future and can tell everybody else in the company what's happening, if you're not listening to them as the emotional sensors who see, who sense, who feel changes happening in the market, then you're missing an opportunity. Um, the brain, if you look at the kind of raw neuroscience, in an evolutionary sense, um, isn't designed as a logic processor to save us if we're in the savannah to spot the enemy. It's a story processor because, you know, a million years ago, we needed to be alert. And what makes you alert is visualizing something that Imagining. has an aspect. Yeah. And that's why, you know, you can look at Yuval Harari's book. You, you, we spread stories. That's why even, you know, six-second TikTok videos are compelling and go viral because the best TikTok creators create a very simple narrative. And it's what we're attuned to notice. We notice change. We feel how would we confront this dilemma. It's emotion. And in a company culture, the question is how you can create empathy, intuitiveness, the ability to feel as well as describe, as well as strategize. Um, it's not necessarily about logic. Logic is safe, but emotion is where the action is. And if you look at the culture in companies like Stripe, like Netflix, and like Valve, they've each published their own culture guide. And it's not simply about, you know, you're going to work this many hours, you're going to achieve these KPIs. It's about the values. And I was always influenced by a book that Dan Pink wrote about what motivates people. And the book is called Drive. And he looked at all the scientific studies about how to get the best out of your teams. And the science suggests that paying people more is a no-no. That's not what motivates people because that turns everything into a transaction. If you're working in a supermarket checkout, maybe another dollar or two an hour will make a difference. But if you're working at a senior level in a software company or a telco or anything which involves some kind of brain activity, it actually makes you less inclined to jump in. What Dan Pink found as true motivators um, were a combination of what he called autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy, they trust me to solve this problem my own way. I can work the hours I want. And I think work from home is definitely promoting autonomy. Secondly, mastery. I'm going to get better at something by doing this job. I'm going to gain skills. I'm going to somehow enhance myself beyond the task. And purpose, I'm not just working in a job. I'm part of a bigger mission that I can believe in. And it could be a mission to, in 
the case of the health tech entrepreneurs I'm working with, to solve a problem that causes great pain and loss. The climate tech entrepreneurs I'm working with to help save the planet for the next generation. If you can articulate a purpose beyond where the business is as a leader, if you can trust your team to work in their own way, if you can help them work with people who are better than them at things, who will teach them things, you are going to attract some extraordinary talent. And after all, isn't it now a battle for the best talent? I think that's actually uh, that's the, you know, the chicken and the egg. People say stories are important, but let's build a product and then create the story so we can sell it. And I say, if you don't have the right story and purpose, A, you're not going to have the right people. So by definition, by having all those things, you're actually creating, you're setting the, the scene for much better software to be created. So when you go and sell it, First of all, the story will be embedded because it starts with a purpose. And also, the people building it will be more motivated. They will be the better people. So storytelling is such an important fuel of everything. I just find it sometimes, um, I don't want to say frustrating because nothing is frustrating. It's always a challenge, right? But it's, 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 it, it interests me on a, on, a, on a psychological level that we're actually in the software business sometimes even having to talk about it because it's such an intuitive and profound part of our society and people go to church or synagogue or a mosque because they're religious but they're religious you know they're religious and, and religion kind of motivated humanity for thousands of years and it's all about your belief system and stories around it and and tradition so you know and why shouldn't it infiltrate in, in the very essence of of how you do business there it has to be beyond logic it has to be driven right and i uh, so I, uh, I agree with what you said. That was a long way of saying that. Um, I, have a, I have a question which really relates to how you see the future, maybe. And, and you know, we, we, can, uh, we can try to maybe kind of take ourselves 5, 10, 15 years forward. Uh, and I call this kind of the exponential question. You know, we're living in super disruptive times. Uh, and I'm even putting aside the pandemic, which has disrupted this globe and everything. Technology is advancing so fast that uh, it's really creating a difference on a, on a yearly basis and things change, you know, dramatically. And, and, and when you look at the things that you talk about and, and write about, you know, innovation, innovation culture, and, and then comes technology. And I'm wondering if you take that 10, 15, even 20 years forward with, you know, machine and uh, machine learning and AI really being super advanced, how do you see the world and the combination of humans and machines actually contributing to the next thing and who will is there a winner is there a combination that you think will be the right one how do you see things being played out in that kind of future which is most likely the future will will be in because that's the direction things are moving at so the american sports legend yogi berra once said something like um making predictions is really hard, especially about the future. Yeah, yeah. But I think there are certain early signs of those hockey sticks in all sorts of fields where we can see a technology is going to transform lots of sectors. Um, and you know, th there's one that I've become a bit obsessed by lately, which is um, nature as code. 
it's things like synthetic biology. It's our knowledge of how to um, simulate what happens if you put certain molecules together, if you then, in the lab, try a few things out using nature's code. And you know that's starting to give us new forms of cultivated food. That's starting to create new forms of pharmaceutical drugs. And I think this is something that is just going to explode in the next you know, five to 10 years, um, just because there's lots of real problems to solve. And you know, the amount of carbon that we're putting out into the atmosphere is a pretty big one. So how are we going to use nature to work with us to try and make the world inhabitable in the next few years? Um, that links to genomics and what's going to happen with personalization of um, your diet, your medicine, lots of things about you. And again, we're just at the very early stages. The falling cost of sequencing is, you know, it's still dropping towards the price of a cup of coffee to sequence your genome. Um, what happens when there is transparency about that data? And then, of course, as you mentioned, there's artificial intelligence in all its forms, maybe with quantum computing as a way of kind of massively accelerating the processing of this data. And we know that there's an awful lot of our, our world that is still relatively analog. You know, it amazes me that even at this stage of the internet revolution, when schools were told to educate their kids remotely, most of them were starting from zero. Whereas the technology is there to customize lessons for every child based on feedback loops, based on data. Um, we know through seeing deep fakes now that the ability to synthesize any visual, any sound, it's pretty much there. So what happens? So the key questions I think we need to ask collectively are because technology moves a lot faster than regulators and politicians, because there's no centralized control of these technologies, they're out there. It's like electricity, they become commodified pretty quickly. Um, how do we ensure there's both um, an ethical framework around how we govern what happens with these emerging technologies? And also, how do we ensure there isn't monopoly control where there are private entities that own access to you know, the world's genomes? and as we've seen with you know, the Google and Facebook duopoly, um, the advertising system, the world's location data. And if we don't ask those questions now and demand consensus from the people making decisions, they will become powerless. Tech companies are increasingly more powerful than state governments, national governments. Um, where do we want control? And if you look into historic um, tech acceleration, whether it was you know, energy becoming oil in the 30s or the railroads, it's led to typically um, abuse of um, markets by monopolies. And then we all suffer. And I think we need a group of people acting in all of our interests 
to say, okay, this is what we're not going to allow, and this is the framework in which we will see things going forward. And it's worked for the last 70 years to relatively control nuclear proliferation, um, but we're nowhere when it comes to AI. So you think it's actually in order for the future to play out and not like uh, run out of control with a certain company or a group of companies? It's actually, we will require, I'm not going to call it the UN because it, it takes it also kind of to a very specific place, like some type of global council that looks over the interests of the people and, and, and that actually companies almost voluntarily participate in this because it's also for their, it's like the, it, it requires some type of mutual contract. That's, that's actually something very hard to achieve, don't you think? Before we get to that stage, we need to educate people into what they risk giving away. Mm. It's funny, we're now in 2021 starting to get people saying, oh, I don't want to be on WhatsApp. I hear Facebook are using my data. I mean, wake up. This has been <laughs> happening you know, since 2004. Um, some of us have been kind of yelling about it and You know, we've been the uncool ones because people just want to use the services. Um, we need to understand what data we're giving away and why it matters and why it has a huge value and how it can be used against us. Um, but also how we are empowering small private companies um, to dominate a lot of bits of our lives that we didn't think they were touching. And the problem with educating people is when the source of information is no longer a professional you know, team of media storytellers, when it's increasingly snippets of information, maybe real, maybe fake, that people pick up on social media, that becomes really tough. Okay, I think actually that could uh, lead to another series or five other podcasts that we can talk about endlessly about these topics. But, uh, How do we know people are going to trust your podcast? <laughs> I'm just a robot. <laughs> David, it's been really fun and super interesting to have you on this uh, episode. And uh, I look forward maybe to some uh, future conversations. And thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. Thanks for being there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening. And uh, I guess I'll see you in uh, the next episode.